Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I continue the story of The Secret Garden. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 11 The Nest of the Missile Thrush For two or three minutes he stood looking round him while Mary watched him, and then he began to walk about softly, even more lightly than Mary had walked the first time she had found herself inside the four walls. His eyes seemed to be taking in everything. The grey trees with the grey creepers climbing over them, 
and hanging from their branches, the tangle on the walls and among the grass, the evergreen alcoves with the stone seats and tall flower urns standing in them. I never thought I'd see this place, he said at last, in a whisper. Did you know about it? asked Mary. She had spoken aloud, and he made a sign to her. We must talk low, he said, or someone will hear us and wonder what's to do in here. Oh, I forgot, said Mary, feeling frightened and putting her hand quickly against her mouth. Did you know about the garden? she asked again when she'd recovered herself. Dickon nodded. Martha told me there was one, as no one ever went inside, he said. Us used to wonder what it was like. He stopped and looked round at the lovely grey tangle about him, and his round eyes looked strangely happy. The nests as will be here come springtime, he said. It'd be the safest nesting place in England. No one ever come in there, and tangles of trees and roses to build in. I wonder all the birds on the moor don't build here. Mistress Mary put her hand on his arm again without knowing it. Will there be roses? she whispered. Can you tell? I thought perhaps they were all dead. No, not them, not all of them, he answered. Look here. He stepped over to the nearest tree, an old, old one, with grey lichen all over its bark, but upholding a curtain of tangled sprays and branches. He took a thick knife out of his pocket and opened one of its blades. There's lots of dead wood as ought to be cut out, he said, and there's a lot of old wood. But it made some new last year. This here's a new bit, and he touched a shoot which looked brownish green instead of hard, dry grey. Mary touched it herself in an eager, reverent way. That one, she said, is that one quite alive? Quite? Dickon curved his wide, smiling mouth. It's as wick as you or me, he said. And Mary remembered that Martha had told her that wick meant alive or lively. I'm glad it's wick, she cried out in a whisper. I want them all to be wick. Let us go round the garden and count how many wick ones there are. She quite panted with eagerness, and Dickon was as eager as she was. They went from tree to tree and from bush to bush. Dickon carried his knife in his hand and showed her things which she thought wonderful. They've run wild, he said but the strongest ones has thrived on it. The delicatest ones has died out, but the others has grown and grown and spread and spread till they's a wonder. See here. And he pulled out a thick, grey, dry-looking branch. A body might think this was dead wood, but I don't believe it is, down to the root. I'll cut it low down and see. He knelt, and with his knife cut the lifeless-looking branch through, not far above the earth. There, he said exultantly. I told thee so. There's green in that wood yet. Look at it. Mary was down on her knees before he spoke, gazing with all her might. When it looks a bit greenish and juicy like that, it's wick, he explained. When the inside is dry and breaks easy, like this here piece I've cut off, it's done for. There's a big root here, as all this live wood sprung out of, and if the old wood's cut off and it's dug round and took care of, there'll be... He stopped and lifted his face to look up at the climbing and hanging sprays above him. There'll be a fountain of roses here this summer. They went from bush to bush and from tree to tree. He was very strong and clever with his knife and knew how to cut the dry and dead wood away and could tell when an unpromising bough or twig 
had still green life in it. In the course of a half hour, Mary thought she could tell too, and when he cut through a lifeless-looking branch, she would cry out joyfully under her breath when she caught sight of the least shade of moist green. The spade and hoe and fork were very useful. He showed her how to use the fork while he dug about roots with the spade and stirred the earth and let the air in. They were working industriously round one of the biggest standard roses when he caught sight of something which made him utter an exclamation of surprise. Why, he cried, pointing to the grass a few feet away. Who did that there? It was one of Mary's own little clearings round the pale green points. I did it, said Mary. Why, I thought you didn't know anything about gardening, he exclaimed. I don't, she answered. But they were so little, and the grass was so thick and strong, and they looked as if they had no room to breathe, so I made a little place for them. I don't even know what they are. Dickon went and knelt down by them, smiling his wide smile. You were right, he said. A gardener couldn't have told thee better. They'll grow now like Jack's beanstalk. They're crocuses and snowdrops, and these here is narcissuses, turning to another patch, and here's Daffy Down Dillies. They'll be a sight. He ran from one clearing to another. You've done a lot of work for such a little wench, he said, looking her over. I'm growing fatter, said Mary, and I'm growing stronger. I used to always be tired. When I dig, I'm not tired at all. I like to smell the earth when it's turned up. It's rare good for thee, he said, nodding his head wisely. There's not as nice as the smell of good, clean earth, except the smell of fresh growing things when the rain falls on them. I get out on the moor many a day when it's raining, and I lie under a bush and listen to the soft swish of drops in the heather, and I just sniff and sniff. My nose and fair quivers like a rabbit's mother says. Do you never catch cold? inquired Mary, gazing at him wonderingly. She had never seen such a funny boy, or such a nice one. Not me, he said, grinning. I never catched cold since I was born. I wasn't brought up nesh enough. I've chased about the moor in all weathers, same as with the rabbits does. Mother says I've sniffed up too much fresh air for twelve years to ever get to sniffing with cold. I'm as tough as a white thorn knobstick. He was working all the time he was talking, and Mary was following him and helping him with her fork and the trowel. There's a lot of work to do here, he said once, looking about quite exultantly. Will you come again and help me to do it? Mary begged. I'm sure I can help too. I can dig and pull up weeds and do whatever you tell me. Oh, do come, Dickon. I'll come every day if you want me to, rain or shine, he answered stoutly. It's the best fun I've ever had in my life, shut in here and waking up a garden. If you'll come, said Mary, if you will help me to make it alive, I'll... I don't know what I'll do, she ended helplessly. What could you do for a boy like that? I'll tell thee what you'll do, said Dickon, with his happy grin. You'll get fat, and you'll get as hungry as a young fox, and you'll learn how to talk to the robin same as I do. We'll have a lot of fun. He began to walk about, looking up in the trees and at the walls and bushes with a thoughtful expression. I wouldn't want to make it look like a gardener's garden, all clipped to the spick and span, would you? He said. It's nicer like this with things running wild and swinging and catching hold of each other. Don't let us make it tidy, said Mary anxiously. It wouldn't seem a secret garden if it was tidy. Dickon stood rubbing his rusty head with a rather puzzled look. 
It's a secret garden, sure enough, he said. But it seems like someone besides the robin must have been in it since it was shut up ten years ago. But the door was locked and the key was buried, said Mary. No one could get in. That's true, he answered. It's a strange place. Seems to me as if there'd been a bit of pruning done here and there, later than ten years ago. But how could it have been done, said Mary. He was examining a branch of a standard rose and he shook his head. Aye, how could it, he murmured, with the door locked and the key buried. Mistress Mary always felt that, however many years she lived, she would never forget that first morning when her garden began to grow. Of course, it did seem to begin to grow for her that morning. When Dickon began to clear places to plant seeds, she remembered what Basil had sung at her when he wanted to tease her. Are there any flowers that look like bells? She inquired. Lilies of the valley does, he answered, digging away with the trowel. And there's Canterbury bells and Campanulas. Let's plant some, said Mary. There's lilies of the valley here already. I saw them. They'll have grown too close and we'll have to separate them, but there's plenty. The other ones takes two years to bloom from seed, but I can bring you some bits of plants from our cottage garden. Why do you want them? Then Mary told him about Basil and his brothers and sisters in India, and of how she had hated them, and of their calling her Mistress Mary quite contrary. They used to dance around and sing at me. They sang, Mistress Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and marigolds all in a row. I just remembered it, and it made me wonder if there were really flowers like silver bells. She frowned a little, gave her trowel a rather spiteful dig into the earth. I wasn't as contrary as they were. But Dickon laughed. Eh, he said. And as he crumbled the rich black soil, she saw he was sniffing up the scent of it. There doesn't seem to be need for no one to be contrary when there's flowers and such like. Such lots of friendly wild things running about, making homes for themselves, or building nests, and singing and whistling, does there? Mary, kneeling by him holding the seeds, looked at him and stopped frowning. Dickon, she said, you're as nice as Martha said you were. I like you, and you make the fifth person. I never thought I should like five people. Dickon sat upon his heels as Martha did when she was polishing the grate. He did look funny and delightful, Mary thought, with his round blue eyes and red cheeks and happy-looking turned-up nose. Only five folk do you like, he said. Who's the other four? Your mother and Martha. Mary checked them off on her fingers. And the robin. And Ben Weatherstaff. Dickon laughed so that he was obliged to stifle the sound by putting his arm over his mouth. I know you think I'm a strange lad, he said, but I think that you're the strangest of the last I ever saw. Then Mary did a strange thing. She leaned forward and asked him a question she had never dreamed of asking anyone before. Do you like me? she said. Eh, he answered heartily. That I does. I like the wonderful, and so does the robin, I do believe. That's two then, said Mary. That's two for me. And then they began to work harder than ever and more joyfully. Mary was startled and sorry when she heard the big clock in the courtyard strike the hour of her midday dinner. I shall have to go, she said mournfully. And you will have to go too, won't you? Dickon grinned. My dinner is easy to carry about with me, he said. Mother always lets me put a bit of something in my pocket. He picked up his coat from the grass and brought out of a pocket a lumpy little bundle 
tied up in a quite clean, coarse, blue and white handkerchief. It held two thick pieces of bread, with a slice of something laid between them. It's oftenest naught but bread, he said, but I've got a fine slice of fat bacon with it today. Mary thought it looked a strange dinner, but he seemed quite ready to enjoy it. Run on and get thy victuals, he said. I'll be done with mine first. I'll get some more work done before I start back home. He sat down with his back against a tree. I'll call the robin up, he said, and give him the rind of the bacon to peck at. They likes a bit of fat wonderful. Mary could scarcely bear to leave him. Suddenly it seemed as if he might be a sort of wood fairy who might be gone when she came into the garden again. He seemed too good to be true. She went slowly halfway to the door, and then she stopped and went back. Whatever happens, you you never would tell, she said. His poppy-coloured cheeks were distended with his first big bite of bread and bacon, but he managed to smile encouragingly. If you were a missile thrush and showed me where your nest was, do you think I'd tell anyone? Not me, he said. You are as safe as a missile thrush. And she was quite sure she was. Chapter 12 Might I Have a Bit of Earth? Mary ran so fast that she was rather out of breath when she reached her room. Her hair was ruffled on her forehead, and her cheeks were bright pink. Her dinner was waiting on the table, and Martha was waiting near it. You're a bit late, she said. Where have you been? I've seen Dickon, said Mary. I've seen Dickon. I knew he'd come, said Martha, exultantly. How do you like him? I think, I think he's beautiful, said Mary, in a determined voice. Martha looked quite taken aback, but she looked pleased, too. Well, she said, he's the best lad as ever was born, but I never thought he was handsome. His nose turns up too much. I like it to turn up, said Mary. And his eyes so round, said Martha, a trifle doubtful, though they're a nice colour. I like them round, said Mary. They're exactly the colour of the sky over the moor. Martha beamed with satisfaction. Mother says he made him that colour with all his looking up at the birds and the clouds. But he's got a big mouth, hasn't he now? I love his big mouth, said Mary obstinately. I wish mine were just like it. Martha chuckled delightedly. It looks rare and funny in thy bit of face, she said. But I know it would be that way when you saw him. How do you like the seeds and the garden tools? How did you know he brought them? asked Mary. I never thought of him not bringing them. He'd be sure to bring them if they was in Yorkshire. He's such a trusty lad. Mary was afraid that she might begin to ask difficult questions, but she did not. She was very much interested in the seeds and gardening tools, and there was only one moment when Mary was frightened. This was when she began to ask where the flowers were to be planted. Who did you ask about it? she inquired. I haven't asked anybody yet, said Mary, hesitating. Well, I wouldn't ask the head gardener. He's too grand, Mr. Roaches. I've never seen him, said Mary. I've only seen undergardeners and Ben Weatherstaff. If I was you, I'd ask Ben Weatherstaff, advised Martha. He's not half as bad as he looks, for he's also crabbed. Mr. Craven lets him do what he likes because he was there when Mrs. Craven was alive. And he used to make her laugh. She liked him. Perhaps he'd find you a corner somewhere out of the way. If it was out of the way and no one wanted it, no one could mind my having it, could they? Mary said anxiously. 
There'd be no reason, answered Martha. You'd do no harm. Mary ate her dinner as quickly as she could, and when she rose from the table, she was going to run to her room to put on her hat, but Martha stopped her. I've got something to tell you, she said. I thought I'd let you eat your dinner first. Mr. Craven came back this morning, and I think he wants to see you. Mary turned quite pale. Oh, she said. Why? He didn't want to see me when I came. I heard Pitcher say he didn't. Well, explained Martha. Mrs. Medlock says it's because of Mother. She was walking to Thwaite Village and she met him. She never spoke to him before, but Mrs. Craven had been to our cottage two or three times. He'd forgot, but Mother hadn't, and she made bold to stop him. I don't know what she said to him about you, but she said something as put him in the mind to see you before he goes away again tomorrow. Oh, cried Mary. Is he going away tomorrow? I'm so glad. He's going for a long time. He mayn't come back till autumn or winter. He's going to travel in foreign places. He's always doing it. Oh, I'm so glad. So glad, said Mary thankfully. If he did not come back until winter or even autumn, there would be time to watch the secret garden come alive. Even if he found out then and took it away from her, she would have had that much at least. When do you think he will want to see? She did not finish the sentence because the door opened and Mrs. Medlock walked in. She had on her best black dress and cap and her collar was fastened with a large brooch with a picture of a man's face on it. It was a coloured photograph of Mr. Medlock, who died years ago, and she always wore it when she was dressed up. She looked nervous and excited. Your hair's rough, she said quickly. Go and brush it. Martha, help her to slip on her best dress. Mr. Craven sent me to bring her to him in his study. All the pink left Mary's cheeks. Her heart began to thump and she felt herself changing into a stiff, plain, silent child again. She did not even answer Mrs. Medlock, but turned and walked into her bedroom, followed by Martha. She said nothing while her dress was changed and her hair brushed, and after she was quite tidy, she followed Mrs. Medlock down the corridors in silence. What was there for her to say? She was obliged to go and see Mr. Craven, and he would not like her, and she would not like him. She knew what he would think of her. She was taken to a part of the house she had not been into before. At last, Mrs. Medlock knocked at a door, and when someone said, come in, they entered the room together. A man was sitting in an armchair before the fire, and Mrs. Medlock spoke to him. This is Miss Mary, sir, she said. You can go and leave her here. I will ring for you when I want you to take her away, said Mr. Craven. When she went out and closed the door, Mary could only stand waiting, a plain little thing, twisting her thin hands together. She could see that the man in the chair was not so much a hunchback as a man with high, rather crooked shoulders, and he had black hair streaked with white. He turned his head over his high shoulders and spoke to her. Come here, he said. Mary went to him. He was not ugly. His face would have been handsome if it had not been so miserable. He looked as if the sight of her worried and fretted him, as if he did not know what in the world to do with her. Are you well? he asked. Yes, answered Mary. Do they take good care of you? Yes. He rubbed his forehead fretfully as he looked her over. You're very thin, he said. I'm getting fatter, Mary answered, and what she knew was her stiffest way. What an unhappy face he had. His black eyes seemed as if they scarcely saw her, as if they were seeing something else and he could hardly keep his thoughts upon her. 
I forgot you, he said. How could I remember you? I intended to send you a governess or a nurse or someone of that sort, but I forgot. Please, began Mary. Please. And then the lump in her throat choked her. What do you want to say? he inquired. I am, I'm too big for a nurse, said Mary. And please, please don't make me have a governess yet. He rubbed his forehead again and stared at her. That was what the Sowerby woman said, he muttered, absentmindedly. Then Mary gathered a scrap of courage. Is she, is she Martha's mother? She stammered. Yes, I think so, he replied. She knows about children, said Mary. She has twelve. She knows. He seemed to rouse himself. What do you want to do? I want to play out of doors, Mary answered, hoping that her voice did not tremble. I never liked it in India. It makes me hungry here and I'm getting fatter. He was watching her. Mrs. Sowerby said it would do you good. Perhaps it will, he said. She thought you'd better get stronger before you had a governess. It makes me feel strong when I play and the wind comes over the moor, argued Mary. Where do you play? he asked next. Everywhere, gasped Mary. Martha's mother sent me a skipping rope. I skip and run, and I look about to see if things are beginning to stick up out of the earth. I don't do any harm. Don't look so frightened, he said in a worried voice. You could not do any harm, a child like you. You may do what you like. Mary put her hand up to her throat because she was afraid he might see the excited lump which she felt jump into it. She came a step nearer to him. May I? she said tremulously. Her anxious little face seemed to worry him more than ever. Don't look so frightened, he exclaimed. Of course you may. I am your guardian, though I am a poor one for any child. I cannot give you time or attention. I am too ill and wretched and distracted, but I wish you to be happy and comfortable. I don't know anything about children, but Mrs. Medlock is to see that you have all you need. I sent for you today because Mrs. Sowerby said I ought to see you. Her daughter had talked about you. She thought you needed fresh air and freedom and running about. She knows all about children, Mary said again, in spite of herself. She ought to, said Mr. Craven. I thought her rather bold to stop me on the moor, but she said Mrs. Craven had been kind to her. It seemed hard for him to speak his dead wife's name. She's a respectable woman. Now I've seen you, I think she said sensible things. Play out of doors as much as you like. It's a big place, and you may go where you like and amuse yourself as you like. Is there anything you want? As if a sudden thought had struck him. Do you want toys, books, dolls? Might I? quavered Mary. Might I have a bit of earth? In her eagerness, she did not realize how strange the words would sound, and they were not the ones she had meant to say. Mr. Craven looked quite startled. Earth, he repeated. What do you mean? To plant seeds in, to make things grow, to see them come alive, Mary faltered. He gazed at her a moment and then passed his hand quickly over his eyes. Do you care about gardens so much? He said slowly. I didn't know about them in India, said Mary. I was always ill and tired, and it was too hot. I sometimes made little beds in the sand and stuck flowers in them. But here, it is different. Mr. Craven got up and began to walk slowly across the room. A bit of earth, he said to himself, and Mary thought that somehow she must have reminded him of something. When he stopped and spoke to her, his dark eyes looked almost soft and kind. 
You can have as much earth as you want, he said. You remind me of someone else who loved the earth and things that grow. When you see a bit of earth you want, with something of a smile, take it, child, and make it come alive. May I take it from anywhere, if it's not wanted? Anywhere, he answered. There. You must go now. I'm tired. He touched the bell to call Mrs. Medlock. Goodbye. I shall be away all summer. Mrs. Medlock came so quickly that Mary thought she must have been waiting in the corridor. Mrs. Medlock, Mr. Craven said to her, Now I have seen the child. I understand what Mrs. Sowerby meant. She must be less delicate before she begins lessons. Give her simple, healthy food. Let her run wild in the garden. Don't look after her too much. She needs liberty and fresh air and romping about. Mrs. Sowerby is to come and see her now and then, and she may sometimes go to the cottage. Mrs. Medlock looked pleased. She was relieved to hear that she need not look after Mary too much. She had felt her a tiresome charge, and had indeed seen as little of her as she dared. In addition to this, she was fond of Martha's mother. Thank you, sir, she said. Susan Sowerby and me went to school together, and she's as sensible and good-natured a woman as you could find in a day's walk. I never had any children myself, and she's had twelve, and there never was healthier or better ones. Miss Mary can do no harm from them. I'd always take Susan Sowerby's advice about children myself. She's what you might call healthy-minded, if you understand me. I understand, Mr. Craven answered. Take Miss Mary away now and send picture to me. When Mrs. Medlock left her at the end of her own corridor, Mary flew back to her room. She found Martha waiting there. Martha had in fact hurried back after she had removed the dinner service. I can have my garden, cried Mary. I may have it where I like. I'm not going to have a governess for a long time. Your mother is coming to see me, and I may go to your cottage. He says a little girl like me cannot do any harm, and I may do what I like, anywhere. Hey, said Martha delightedly. That was nice of him, wasn't it? Martha, said Mary solemnly. He's really a nice man, only his face is so miserable, and his forehead is all drawn together. She ran as quickly as she could to the garden. She had been away so much longer than she had thought she should, and she knew Dickon would have had to set out early on his five-mile walk. When she slipped through the door under the ivy, she saw he was not working where she had left him. The gardening tools were laid together under a tree. She ran to them, looking all around the place, but there was no Dickon to be seen. He had gone away, and the secret garden was empty, except for the robin who had just flown across a wall and sat on a standard rosebush watching her. He's gone, she said woefully. Oh, was he, was he only a wood fairy? Something white fastened to the rosebush caught her eye. It was a piece of paper. In fact, it was a piece of paper she had printed for Martha to send to Dickon. It was fastened on the bush with a long thorn, and in a minute she knew Dickon had left it there. There were some roughly printed words on it and a sort of picture. At first, she could not tell what it was. Then she saw it was meant for a nest with a bird sitting on it. Underneath were the printed words, and they said, I will come back. Chapter 13 I Am Colin Mary took the picture back to the house when she went to her supper, and she showed it to Martha. Eh, said Martha with a great pride, I never knew our Dickon was as clever as that. That there's a picture of a missile thrush on her nest as large as life and twice as natural. 
Then Mary knew Dickon had meant the picture to be a message. He had meant that she might be sure he would keep her secret. Her garden was her nest, and she was like a missile thrush. Oh, how she did like that strange, common boy. She hoped he would come back the very next day, and she fell asleep looking forward to the morning. But you never know what the weather will do in Yorkshire, particularly in springtime. She was awakened in the night by the sound of rain beating with heavy drops against her window. It was pouring down in torrents, and the wind was wuthering round the corners and in the chimneys of the huge old house. Mary sat up in bed and felt miserable and angry. The rain is as contrary as I ever was, she said. It came because it knew I did not want it. She threw herself back on her pillow and buried her face. She did not cry, but she lay and hated the sound of the heavily beating rain. She hated the wind and its wuthering. She could not go to sleep again. The mournful sound kept her awake because she felt mournful herself. If she had felt happy, it would probably have lulled her to sleep. How it wuthered, and how the big raindrops poured down and beat against the pane. It sounds just like a person lost in the moor and wandering on and on crying, she said. She had been lying awake, turning from side to side for about an hour, when suddenly something made her sit up in bed and turn her head toward the door, listening. She listened and listened. It isn't the wind now, she said in a loud whisper. That isn't the wind. It is different. It is that crying I heard before. The door of her room was ajar, and the sound came down the corridor, a far-off faint sound of fretful crying. She listened for a few minutes, and each minute she became more and more sure. She felt as if she must find out what it was. It seemed even stranger than the secret garden and the buried key. Perhaps the fact that she was in a rebellious mood made her bold. She put her foot out of bed and stood on the floor. I'm going to find out what it is, she said. Everybody is in bed, and I don't care about Mrs. Medlock. I don't care. There was a candle by her bedside, and she took it up and went softly out of the room. The corridor looked very long and dark, but she was too excited to mind that. She thought she remembered the corners she must turn to find the short corridor with the door covered with tapestry. The one Mrs. Medlock had come through the day she lost herself. The sound had come up that passage. So she went on with her dim light, almost feeling her way, her heart beating so loud that she fancied she could hear it. The far-off faint crying went on and led her. Sometimes it stopped for a moment or so and then began again. Was this the right corner to turn? She stopped and thought. Yes, it was. Down this passage, and then to the left, and then up two broad steps, and then to the right again. Yes, there was the tapestry door. She pushed it open very gently, and closed it behind her, and stood in the corridor, and heard the crying quite plainly, though it was not loud. It was on the other side of the wall, at her left, and a few yards further on here was a door. She could see a glimmer of light coming from underneath it. The someone was crying in that room, and it was quite a young someone. So she walked to the door and pushed it open, and there she was, standing in the room. It was a big room, with ancient, handsome furniture in it. There was a low fire glowing faintly on the hearth, and a nightlight burning by the side of a carved, four-posted bed hung with brocade. And on the bed was lying a boy, crying fretfully. 
Mary wondered if she was in a real place, or if she had fallen asleep again and was dreaming without knowing it. The boy had a sharp, delicate face, the color of ivory, and he seemed to have eyes too big for it. He had also a lot of hair which tumbled over his forehead and heavy locks and made his thin face seem smaller. He looked like a boy who'd been ill, but he was crying more as if he were tired and cross than as if he were in pain. Mary stood near the door with her candle in her hand, holding her breath. Then she crept across the room, and as she drew nearer, the light attracted the boy's attention, and he turned his head on his pillow and stared at her, his grey eyes opening so wide that they seemed immense. Who are you? he said at last in a half-frightened whisper. Are you a ghost? No, I'm not, Mary answered, her own whisper sounding half-frightened. Are you one? He stared and stared and stared. Mary could not help noticing what strange eyes he had. They were agate grey, and they looked too big for his face because they had black lashes all round them. No, he replied, after waiting a moment or so. I'm Colin. Who is Colin? she faltered. I'm Colin Craven. Who are you? I am Mary Lennox. Mr. Craven is my uncle. He is my father, said the boy. Your father? gasped Mary. No one ever told me he had a boy. Why didn't they? Come here, he said, still keeping his strange eyes fixed on her with an anxious expression. She came close to the bed, and he put out his hand and touched her. You are real, aren't you? he said. I have such real dreams very often. You might be one of them. Mary had slipped on a woolen wrapper before she left her room, and she put a piece of it between his fingers. Rub that and see how thick and warm it is, she said. I will pinch you a little, if you like, to show you how real I am. For a minute, I thought you might be a dream too. Where did you come from? he asked. From my own room. The wind weathered so I couldn't go to sleep. And I heard someone crying and wanted to find out who it was. What were you crying for? Because I couldn't go to sleep either, and my head ached. Tell me your name again. Mary Lennox. Did no one ever tell you I'd come to live here? He was still fingering the fold of her wrapper, but he began to look a little more as if he believed in her reality. No, he answered. They daren't. Why? asked Mary. Because... I should have been afraid you would see me. I won't let people see me and talk me over. Why? Mary asked again, feeling more mystified every moment. Because I'm like this always, ill and having to lie down. My father won't let people talk me over either. The servants are not allowed to speak to me. If I live, I may be a hunchback. But I shan't live. My father hates to think I may be like him. What a strange house this is, Mary said. What a strange house. Everything is a kind of secret. Rooms are locked up, and gardens are locked up. And you, have you been locked up? No. I stay in this room because I don't want to be moved out of it. It tires me too much. Does your father come and see you? Mary ventured. Sometimes. Generally when I'm asleep. He doesn't want to see me. Why? Mary could not help asking again. A sort of angry shadow passed over the boy's face. My mother died when I was born, and it makes him wretched to look at me. He thinks I don't know, but I've heard people talking. He almost hates me. He hates the garden because she died, said Mary, half speaking to herself. What garden? the boy asked, 
Oh, just, just a garden she used to like, Mary stammered. Have you been here always? Nearly always. Sometimes I've been taken to places at the seaside, but I won't stay because people stare at me. I used to wear an iron thing to keep my back straight, but a grand doctor came from London to see me and said it was stupid. He told them to take it off and keep me out in the fresh air. I hate fresh air and I don't want to go out. I didn't when I first came here, said Mary. Why do you keep looking at me like that? Because of the dreams that are so real, he answered rather fretfully. Sometimes when I open my eyes, I don't believe I'm awake. We're both awake, said Mary. She glanced around the room with its high ceiling and shadowy corners and dim firelight. It looks quite like a dream, and it's the middle of the night, and everybody in the house is asleep. Everybody but us. We are wide awake. I don't want it to be a dream, the boy said restlessly. Mary thought of something all at once. If you don't like people to see you, she began, do you want me to go away? He still held the fold of her wrapper, and he gave it a little pull. No, he said. I should be sure you were a dream if you went. If you're real, sit down on that big footstool and talk. I want to hear about you. Mary put down her candle on the table near the bed and sat down on the cushioned stool. She did not want to go away at all. She wanted to stay in the mysterious hidden room and talk to the mysterious boy. What do you want me to tell you? She said. He wanted to know how long she had been at Misselthwaite. He wanted to know which corridor her room was on. He wanted to know what she'd been doing. If she disliked the moor as he disliked it. Where she'd lived before she came to Yorkshire. She answered all these questions and many more and he lay back on his pillow and listened. He made her tell him a great deal about India and about her voyage across the ocean. She found out that because he had been an invalid, he had not learned things as other children had. One of his nurses had taught him to read when he was quite little, and he was always reading and looking at pictures and splendid books. Though his father really saw him when he was awake, he was given all sorts of wonderful things to amuse himself with. He never seemed to have been amused, however. He could have anything he asked for and was never made to do anything he did not like to do. Everyone is obliged to do what pleases me, he said indifferently. It makes me ill to be angry. No one believes I shall live to grow up. He said it as if he was so accustomed to the idea that it had ceased to matter to him at all. He seemed to like the sound of Mary's voice. As she went on talking, he listened in a drowsy, interested way. Once or twice she wondered if he were not gradually falling into a doze. But at last, he asked a question which opened up a new subject. How old are you? he asked. I'm ten, answered Mary, forgetting herself for a moment. And so are you. How do you know that? he demanded in a surprised voice. Because when you were born, the garden door was locked and the key was buried, and it had been locked for ten years. Colin half sat up, turning toward her, leaning on his elbows. What garden door was locked? Who did it? Where was the key buried? He exclaimed as if he were suddenly very much interested. It was the garden Mr. Craven hates, said Mary nervously. He locked the door. No one, no one knew where he buried the key. What sort of garden is it? Colin persisted eagerly. No one has been allowed to go into it for ten years, was Mary's careful answer. But it was too late to be careful. He was too much like herself. He too had had nothing to think about, and the idea of a hidden garden attracted him as it had attracted her. He asked 
Question after question. Where was it? Had she ever looked for the door? Had she never asked the gardeners? They won't talk about it, said Mary. I think they've been told not to answer questions. I would make them, said Colin. Could you? Mary faltered, beginning to feel frightened. If he could make people answer questions, who knew what might happen? Everyone is obliged to please me. I told you that, he said. If I were to live, this place would sometime belong to me. They all know that. I would make them tell me. Mary had not known that she herself had been spoiled, but she could see quite plainly that this mysterious boy had been. He thought that the whole world belonged to him. How peculiar he was, and how cool he spoke of not living. Do you think you won't live? she asked, partly because she was curious and partly in hope of making him forget the garden. I don't suppose I shall, he answered as indifferently as he had spoken before. Ever since I remember anything, I've heard people say I shan't. At first they thought I was too little to understand, and now they think I don't hear. But I do. My doctor is my father's cousin. He's quite poor, and if I die, he will have all Misselthwaite when my father is dead. I should think he wouldn't want me to live. Do you want to live? inquired Mary. No, he answered, in a cross, tired fashion. But I don't want to die. When I feel ill, I lie here, and I think about it until I cry and cry. I've heard you crying three times, Mary said, but I did not know who it was. Were you crying about that? She did so want him to forget the garden. I dare say, he answered. Let us talk about something else. Talk about that garden. Don't you want to see it? Yes, answered Mary in a quite low voice. I do, he went on persistently. I don't think I ever really wanted to see anything before, but I want to see that garden. I want the key dug up. I want the door unlocked. I would let them take me there in my chair. That would be getting fresh air. I'm going to make them open the door. He had become quite excited, and his strange eyes began to shine like stars and looked more immense than ever. They have to please me, he said. I will make them take me there, and I will let you go too. Mary's hands clutched together. Everything would be spoiled, everything. Dickon would never come back. She would never again feel like a missile thrush with a safe hidden nest. Oh, don't, 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 don't do that, she cried out. He stared as if he thought she had gone crazy. Why, he exclaimed. You said you wanted to see it. I do, she answered, almost with a sob in her throat. But if you make them open the door and take you in like that, it will never be a secret again. He leaned still further forward. A secret, he said. What do you mean? Tell me. Mary's words almost tumbled over one another. You see, you see, she panted. If no one knows about it but ourselves, if there was a door hidden somewhere under the ivy, if there was, and we could find it, and if we could slip through it together and shut it behind us, and no one knew anyone was inside, and we called it our garden and pretended that, that we were missile thrushes and it was our nest, and if we played there almost every day, and dug, and planted seeds, and made it all come alive. Is it dead? He interrupted her. It soon will be if no one cares for it, she went on. The bulbs will live, but the roses. He stopped her again, as excited as she was herself. What are bulbs? He put in quickly. They are daffodils and lilies and snowdrops. 
They're working in the earth now, pushing up pale green points, because the spring is coming. Is the spring coming? He said. What is it like? You don't see it in rooms if you're ill. It is the sun shining on the rain, and the rain falling on the sunshine, and things pushing up and working under the earth, said Mary. If the garden was a secret, and we could get into it, we could watch the things grow bigger every day, and see how many roses are alive. Don't you see? Or don't you see how much nicer it could be if it was a secret? He dropped back on his pillow and lay there with an odd expression on his face. I never had a secret, he said, except that one about not living to grow up. They don't know I know that, so it is sort of a secret. But I like this kind better. If you won't make them take you to the garden, pleaded Mary, perhaps. I feel almost sure I can find out how to get in sometime. And then, if the doctor wants you to go out in your chair, and if you can always do what you want to do, perhaps, perhaps we might find some boy who could push you, and we could go alone, and it would always be a secret garden. I should like that, he said very slowly, his eyes looking dreamy. I should like that. I should not mind fresh air in a secret garden. Mary began to recover her breath and feel safer, because the idea of keeping the secret seemed to please him. She felt almost sure that if she kept on talking and could make him see the garden in his mind, as she had seen it, he would like it so much that he could not bear to think that everybody might tramp into it when they chose. I'll tell you what I think it would be like if we could go into it, she said. It has been shut up so long things have grown into a tangle, perhaps. He lay quite still and listened while she went on talking about the roses which might have clambered from tree to tree and hung down, about the many birds which might have built their nests there because it was so safe. And then she told him about the robin and Ben Weatherstaff, and there was so much to tell about the robin, and it was so easy and safe to talk about it that she ceased to be afraid. The robin pleased him so much that he smiled until he looked almost beautiful. And at first Mary had thought that he was even plainer than herself, with his big eyes and heavy locks of hair. I did not know birds could be like that, he said. But if you stay in a room, you never see things. What a lot of things, you know. I feel as if you had been inside that garden. She did not know what to say, so she did not say anything. He evidently did not expect an answer, and the next moment he gave her a surprise. I'm going to let you look at something, he said. Do you see that rose-coloured silk curtain hanging on the wall over the mantelpiece? Mary had not noticed it before, but she looked up and saw it. It was a curtain of soft silk hanging over what seemed to be a picture. Yes, she answered. There is a cord hanging from it, said Colin. Go and pull it. Mary got up, much mystified, and found the cord. When she pulled it, the silk curtain ran back on rings, and when it ran back, it uncovered a picture. It was a picture of a girl with a laughing face. She had bright hair tied up with a blue ribbon, and her lovely eyes were exactly like Colin's unhappy ones, grey and looking twice as big as they really were because of the black lashes all around them. She's my mother, said Colin, complainingly. I don't know why she died. Sometimes I hate her for doing it. How strange, said Mary. If she had lived, I believe, I should not have been ill always, he grumbled. I dare say I should have lived too. And my father would not have hated to look at me. I dare say I should have had a strong back. Draw the curtain again. Mary did as she was told and returned to her footstool. 
she's much prettier than you, she said. But her eyes are just like yours. At least, they're the same shape and color. Why is a curtain drawn over her? He moved uncomfortably. I made them do it, he said. Sometimes I don't like to see her looking at me. She smiles too much when I'm ill and miserable. Besides, she is mine, and I don't want everyone to see her. There were a few moments of silence, and then Mary spoke. What would Mrs. Medlock do if she found out that I had been here, she inquired. She would do as I told her to do, he answered. And I should tell her that I wanted you to come here and talk to me every day. I'm glad you came. So am I, said Mary. I will come as often as I can, but, she hesitated, I shall have to look every day for the garden door. Yes, you must, said Colin, and you can tell me about it afterward. He lay thinking a few minutes, as he had done before, and then he spoke again. I think you shall be a secret too, he said. I will not tell them until they find out. I can always send the nurse out of the room and say that I want to be by myself. Do you know Martha? Yes, I know her very well, said Mary. She waits on me. He nodded his head toward the outer corridor. She is the one who is asleep in the other room. The nurse went away yesterday to stay all night with her sister, and she always makes Martha attend to me when she wants to go out. Martha shall tell you when to come here. Then Mary understood Martha's troubled look when she had asked questions about the crying. Martha knew about you all the time, she said. Yes, she often attends to me. The nurse likes to get away from me, and then Martha comes. I have been here a long time, said Mary. Shall I go away now? Your eyes look sleepy. I wish I could go to sleep before you leave me, he said rather shyly. Shut your eyes, said Mary, drawing her footstool closer. And I will do what my ayah used to do in India. I will pat your hand and stroke it and sing something quite low. I should like that, perhaps, he said drowsily. Somehow she was sorry for him and did not want him to lie awake. So she leaned against the bed and began to stroke and pat his hand and sing a very low little chanting song. That is nice, he said, more drowsily still. And she went on chanting and stroking. When she looked at him again, his black lashes were lying close against his cheeks, for his eyes were shut and he was fast asleep. So she got up softly, took her candle, and crept away without making a sound. Good night.